I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. All right. So last week we read um, Are Prisons Obsolete? And we decided that they were. Um, we also talked a little bit about the ongoing prison strike that is currently happening. Uh, so this week we wanted to focus more on that prison strike and talk to one of the people that are on the media relations team for um, Jailhouse Lawyers. So to do that, uh, this week we talked to Jared Ware. He's the co-host of Millennials Are Killing Capitalism podcast. You should listen to that. It's pretty fun. Um, he's the producer on another podcast called Beyond Prisons. He's a freelance reporter and a professional prison abolitionist. I, <laughs> that's just a LinkedIn page title <laughs> that's right uh you can follow him on twitter at jbware that's j-a-y-b-e-w-a-r-e he's on twitter he's got a lot of good tweets about uh well he's got a lot of good tweets about everything but um i've been following him for a bit but been really into the tweets he's been making about uh the way that journalists are covering the prison strike and it's no surprise it's not good <laughs> they're not <laughs> not doing a great job uh, yeah, we'll hear a little bit more about that reporting and some of the challenges on it, and also Jared's own reporting uh, on the um, the prison strike and just reporting on prisons more generally in a bit. Uh, and we're also going to hear some really cool um, conversation about uh, Christianity and abolition. Um, Jared had some some good surprise theology at the end, <laughs> whether he knows it or not, I guess. Um, so good for your sermons this sunday uh for more information on the prison strike though you can check out incarceratedworkers.org so they're collecting all kinds of really good reports and dispatches and also they have a list of uh, actions that you can take to support the strikers and the strike officially goes till september 9th um so there's plenty of time even though this episode comes out on uh, friday there's lots of time after that to keep um keep up the uh, you know, sharing all the kind of media that's coming out that's actually good and um, different kinds of things that you can do to uh, actually sort of make a, uh, a supportive stand and, and hopefully help out a little bit on the inside. All right, so this week on the Magnificast, we're talking with Jared Ware, who's a freelance journalist who covers a lot of really interesting stuff and lately especially has been on the beat uh, regarding the prison strike that's going on 
uh, right now in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and we're going to get into a lot of that and kind of find out a little bit about the dynamics of that strike and um, Jared's coverage of it and uh, kind of what's going on. But before we do that, maybe we'll just catch up uh, a little bit. So um, let's uh, go ahead and start with you there, Matt. What have you been up to? Not a whole lot. It's uh, been pretty straightforward uh, week for me. School started, so I'm just uh, getting back in the old routine of doing school. <laughs> Nothing exciting to report there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. Uh, that's good. Same here, really. I've got uh, nothing nothing really going on. I went on vacation. That was a good time. I went back to Michigan, so I got a little break and got out of the city. Uh, here in Toronto, it gets like, a little congested, I feel like, this time of year, so it's good to get a break. Yeah, sick. Um, yeah. Uh, Jared, what have you been up to lately, apart from uh, being super busy <laughs> covering all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, that has covered a lot of my time. Um, I have a fourth grade son who just started school this week, so that's the other thing. And then I also have an 11-month-old baby. So um, when I'm not working on prison strike-related stuff that is and not doing my day job um, that pays my bills, then that's what I'm doing. So <laughs> Yeah, it's a full-time nice. thing. That's a busy house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. Well, let's go ahead and just get into some of that stuff that you do for your day job, some of this coverage that's been going on. Uh, last week, we talked about um, Angela Davis's book, Our Prisons Obsolete, and just kind of got into some questions about, you know, what our prison's about, what's the history of prisons, uh, what does it mean to be a prison abolitionist, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think it's really exciting to get into, uh, you know, how this is playing out on the ground and not just in theory or, or that sort of thing. So maybe we could just start out with some general questions and we'll get a little more detailed as we go. Um, so what is going on with the prison strike right now? Uh, what What's kind of a synopsis maybe of the events so far? Today's the 28th of August, so it's ongoing. But uh, up till now, what's been going on? Yeah, so I think, you know, the thing about it, so... Um, I'm a part of the uh, media team for the prison strike. I've been asked to be in that role by Jailhouse Lawyer Speak, which is the organization that called the prison strike this time. Um, and so I have an interesting role this time, you know, and I had an interesting role in 2016 also. But um, basically, typically I do write about prisons a lot and write about those movements. I also podcast um, myself and, um, you know, I'm in this role of kind of playing, uh, media relations role for, um, the strike, which is a little bit interesting because what I really would like to see is the prisoners voices out in the media. Um, but there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's complicated and we'll get into that more later. But, um, you know, what's going on is that there's a national prison strike that's underway. Um, we're finding that we just released a press statement um, earlier today. And within the next couple hours, we heard reports of two other prisons that were striking in different states that weren't even reported yet. So it's it's very much by the time this publishes, I'm sure that there will be more going on again than what is out there. So. Um, I don't want to frame it too much in terms of um, exactly what's happening because the reality is that there's a whole lot happening behind the walls that we just have no idea right now. Um, and in 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 terms of what you know, we know we know that there's um, there's hunger strikes going on, there's labor strikes going on, there are sit-ins going on, 
um, and then there are boycotts that are going on. And the funny thing is, like, the least amount of reporting has been about boycotts, but I actually think that's the most widespread tactic happening. Um, and I just think that from my conversations with prisoners, um, prisoners participate in the boycott because there's really nothing that the state can do to retaliate against them for refusing to spend money in the prison. Um, and so it is sort of the most, um, you know, it, it's the one tactic that they can really participate in where they won't be punished for it. Even when a prisoner goes on a hunger strike, typically they put them in solitary confinement to um, move them away from the other prisoners to, you know, to sort of, um, one, as a punitive measure, but also um, I think it's to discourage other prisoners from joining um, joining along with them, basically. Um, so there's all of these different tactics um, and you know, there's, it's, there's stuff going on in Washington state at immigrant detention center. Um, there's stuff going on at several states across the South, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, you know, we're hearing stuff now from Virginia. I heard a report from Delaware today that's not quite confirmed, but it was pretty, uh, telling, um, you know, Missouri, there's just a lot going on. And so even as we're working on it, um, we're trying to be careful in terms of what we confirm because the media, um, we're already seeing some of the more established media that didn't cover the strike in 2016 cover it more, but they cover it from this very skeptical lens. Um, you know, which is like, there's good and bad to that because you get the demands out, you get conversations about this going on. You know, it get, we got, we were in the New York Times this weekend. Um, but at the same time, you know, on the flip side of that, they'll print like, you know, six different state denials, um, which are frankly laughable. But at the same time, if you can't give them like a video of prisoners striking, then they just will believe the state, you know, and even if we had those types of videos, and I'm sure there are videos like that that exist out in the, in the ether, um, you know, giving them a video like that is just going to damn those prisoners to really extreme repression and beyond what they're already facing for their protests. Um, and so we wouldn't share that, you know what I mean? Um, We've learned enough lessons, I think, those of us who've worked on the media relations side from 2016, that we try to take whatever measures we can to not put um, prison protesters in harm's way ourselves in how we talk about what's going on. Um, there are incidents where people's names get revealed, um, sometimes because they end up talking to the press or they end up releasing their name. Um, you know, and, and in those cases, then, um, you know, when there's repression going on, we try to uplift that and have people call in and support. So there's different tactics that we take when, when somebody gets identified, but we will not identify somebody just to, um, you know, to put their name out there like that, because we know the consequences of that. So, um, Anyway, it, that's one of the things that presents a lot of challenges with it. That's a lot of what's going on. Um, like I said, it's 
I, I'm losing count of states, but I think we're up in the range of like 13 or 14 states that are confirmed with strike action now. Um, there's strike action going on in Canada right now, up in Nova Scotia. Um, and so, you know, and there's like, I mean, Palestinian prisoners offering solidarity from Palestine. Um, you know, there, there's an international kind of, you know, movement around this and certainly a national one. Um, and then there's there's 300 organizations plus that have signed on now in solidarity um, with the prison strike. So it's it's beautiful to see all of these different people standing up for these demands and um, uplifting them, but it's also definitely has its challenges in terms of reporting it, in terms of um, getting the word out, but also trying to, um, you know, protect, not, you can't protect prisoners, but, but give them as much cover as you can, um, try not to sort of throw them to the wolves. Um, so, I, I mean, it's a very, it's a very challenging thing to talk about. It's a challenging thing to report. Um, I don't actually like, I, you, you know, I know that I rant about journalists quite a bit with it, but, um, part of my frustration is the number of reporters that they've put on it where this is the first time they've ever reported on prisons. And so they just don't even understand the basic dynamics. Um, but part of it is also with editors and the way that editors, um, kind of the, you know, we can get more into the sort of inside baseball of all the <laughs> reporting stuff later <laughs> on, but, um, you know, that's kind of where it is. And I think that, you know, the, the best thing about it is that the media attention is certainly unparalleled um, for something like this. Um, solidarity is unparalleled for something like this, at least in the modern era. You know, you go back to the 70s or whatever, and it's a different story. But, um, you know, for the modern era, this is this is new. And, um, you know, in 2016, there was a lot of talk about like a mainstream media blackout and um, that's certainly not the case now. You know, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, Al Sharpton had it on MSNBC this weekend. Um, so, you know, there's been a good amount of mainstream coverage, even if it's not everywhere. It's still not going to be the top story. We understand that. But um, the message is certainly out there. That's really cool. I think that gives us a good picture about what's going on and just helps us set the stage a little bit. Well, uh, could you maybe just talk a little bit? This is kind of like a naive question, but I think it's worth getting out there. Um, why is this strike important? Like, why is it important to you? Why is it important for, you know, the left? Why is it important for prisoners? What uh, What would you say to someone who just asked you that question? Yeah, I mean, I think that its importance does depend a little bit upon your how you view things. Um, it's importance to me personally um, is really as an abolitionist, but it is also that I've, I've built relationships with prisoners over the years, um, writing about them, telling their stories. Um, and so I, I care about these people on a, you know, I mean, I, I, you can't call them your friends probably, right? Because you don't probably know them that well. And part of what I've done is, is through a journalistic lens. Um, but I certainly, you know, know a good bit about the stories of some of the people that are inside. Um, and so on a personal level, like I just it, building relationships with prisoners has made me more of a prison abolitionist than I was theoretically. 
um, because I literally want these people out of prison. <laughs> um, but I think that the other side of that, too, is that, you know, in terms of what does it mean for prisoners, um, it, it means kind of an, that a, a number of prisoners across the United States, and this is not not to make people think that of the 2.3 million prisoners that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of prisoners participating in this. I don't think we have any sense that the scale is that large. Um, but what you do have is what we're finding more and more is that there's a lot of prisoners out there. Um, and the more we kind of hear these stories trickling out of these different institutions, um, that are willing to make this sort of ultimate sacrifice. And I really do view it that way, right? Because um, literally, they're they're willing to subject themselves to the torture of the state um, in order to bring about a message about the conditions of their confinement that need to change in order to recognize their humanity and their human rights. And so... Um, you know, it's it's a and it's an amazing sacrifice, and it's an amazing amount of solidarity that the prisoners that are participating are showing with one another, um, really to uplift these demands. And you know, I don't think that most of the people who are participating in it also believe that the demands will just be met. You know what I mean? So they're not they're not making that sacrifice, thinking like, oh, we're going to get to go to a negotiating table and like work this out with the state. Um, they don't, they have no, no belief that that's the case, right? So they're doing it in order to raise this to a national conversation, um, force people to look at these demands in a holistic fashion. Um, and the demands I think are really important demands, you know, so, I mean, I'll walk through a couple of them, right. But, you know, and yeah. it's ending prison slavery, um, you know, meaning that prisoners want, proper compensation for the labor that they do. Um, there's people who push back on that, but the reality is that prisons, prisoners are exploited financially in a ton of different ways and their families still have the burdens of, you know, paying for housing and all this stuff that doesn't go away just because your relative goes away to prison. Um, so that's an important aspect of it. Um, other important aspects are um, some very, this, this gets into jailhouse lawyers speak. So they're, they're an organization of communally trained paralegals. They consider themselves a, um, an imprisoned human rights organization. Um, but what they do is they write writs, they help, um, fellow prisoners file appeals. They help prisoners file grievances in the system. Um, they use every, um, you know, sort of process that they can, right, to try to combat some of the really awful stuff that happens in prisons. Um, and so they approach these demands from a human rights perspective. So, you know, they're looking at um, things that have been removed out of prisons. There aren't education pro programs in prisons anymore, except in a very limited number of cases. Um, so getting those back in getting proper drug rehabilitation programs in prison. You know, a lot of the prisoners that I talk to will talk about the fact that there's a, just a, a massive number of people who are in prison that are still addicted to substances and can't get 
proper treatment, but because guards will bring drugs in as contraband and sell them, um, they can get access to drugs. Um, and so you can imagine the kind of environment that that creates, right? Um, and then, you know, on top of that, um, there's, you know, there's things that aren't on the list, like health, physical health care, mental health care that matter to them extremely. Um, you know, so, that, I mean, they initially had a list of like 30 demands and they whittled it down to 10. Um, the Prison Litigation Reform Act is a really interesting piece in there that um, most people on the outside probably never heard of. But basically what it was is it was a bill that was signed into law by Bill Clinton that um, basically took away most of the access that prisoners had to the court system. So, you know, they could be having violations of their human rights. And before that law came in place, you know, theoretically, they could they could sue the prisons for what they were doing to them. Um, and they can't do that anymore. They can file grievances within the prisons, but um, those get handled by a grievance system within the prison that is is handled by people who work in the prison. Um, and so, you know, that often, that that is usually not a great process for them. JLS is still of the mind that they should use that system, um, but it's certainly a system that a lot of prisoners are leery of being involved in because it just often means more retaliation from prison officials for being that, you know, the prisoner that's advocating for people's rights, basically. Um, so those are some things that are important. So um, other things that are in it, um, I don't have it in front of me right now, and I should have these all memorized, but... Um, but, you know, basically what they're looking at is this this full slate. Oh, another really important thing, actually, is um, basically the abolition of life without parole sentences or death by incarceration sentences. Um, you know, they, they believe fervently that all prisoners should have the opportunity for freedom at some point in their life. Even I mean, to be frank, like having access to parole does not mean you're going to be granted parole. Um, you know, but there's a lot of prisoners that aren't even given the opportunity for parole. Um, and so, you know, they look at things like that in past years, they've talked to me about the term Buck Rogers years, which basically means that, um, you know, there's prisoners that are in the system that, um, will not see freedom until a very long time in the future. Um, prisoners that are serving 40 to 50 years. You know, so they're, they're really um, racial disparities in sentencing is something that they target. Um, they also target um, gang enhancement sentencing. So there's a lot of it that's within the sentencing lens. Um, and part of their analysis of that, right, is that these laws always get implemented in a racist fashion. Um, but their analysis of it is also just that you know, sentences are way too long in our system, which is something that, you know, anybody who's studied it has known for 40 years this research has been out there, right? That that prison sentences, um, you know, it doesn't make sense to incarcerate people for decades, no matter what they've done. It's not, it's not an effective um, deterrent. It's not, um, it's not rehabilitative, um, you know, and, and what it just does is it just eats up their life, basically, um, and has a huge impact, obviously, on their family and the community that they come from as well. Yeah. 
Um, I'm, I'm really thankful that you were able to get some of the uh, stuff out about their demands and kind of get into that a little bit. Because um, I think it's like, it's really easy to see a list of 10 things and kind of read through them. Uh, but it's it's difficult, like you were saying, uh, especially some of the particular kind of legal demands to understand exactly what's being advocated or uh, what they want rescinded and that sort of a thing. Um, and I wonder, maybe you could say a little bit more about that, uh, the kind of information piece about this. I mean, like you, you alluded to before, you've been tweeting a lot about journalists and uh, somewhat of the frustrations that you've seen uh, in some of the reporting, you know, some sort of novice people reporting on prisons. Uh, could you tell us, like, how does uh, information kind of get out of prisons uh, and how does it not get out of prisons? And then how do you sort of see that uh, get reflected in you know, a, a reading public that might not even know that these are issues. Yeah. So, um, the most challenging aspect of reporting on prisons is, um, is getting prisoner voices out of prisons. Um, there's a variety of different methods that people use. Um, there's, you know, there are prisoners who just write letters and have them published, right? So there's a newspaper called the San Francisco Bay View that publishes prisoner um, opinion pieces basically all the time and prisoner journalism. And it actually could use funding too. So if your listeners are uh, listening to this, they should definitely check out the Bay View because that's a very important publication to prisoners that's in a lot of financial hardship. But um and it, it prints what prisoners write and actually sends it back into prisons, right? It, it prints, they print out their papers and, and distribute within prisons. Um, so there's, um, that's one way that prisoners get information out is through the mail. And that's probably the safest way for them. Although just writing about a prison strike can, um, you know, there, there's certain things that, the, the reality is, right, every state has its own laws. And then within states, um, you know, prison systems themselves have um, policies that are often kind of vague and manipulative. Um, and so, you know, and, and then there's just the reality on the ground in prisons, right, which is that if you get retaliated against for something, you don't have a lot of recourse for that. Um, whether it was fair or unfair or followed some sort of process, right? Um, you know, and so there's kind of this, like, barbaric reality, right, behind the prison system that people have to understand. And so, you know, in 2016, this is the best way I probably can tell the story, is that in 2016, um, the Free Alabama Movement was the main voice of the 2016 strike, um, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee was brand new, and they also did um, some of the media work, but um, it was mainly the Free Alabama Movement members. And so um, there were three specifically, um, but it was really primarily uh, Ben Yu, Hannibal Ross, Sun, and Kinetic Justice that were in the media for the most part. And, you know, in that process, their legal names were given out. Um, there, you know, I wasn't in on all of those calls as a journalist to know whether they just offered that openly or, you know, or whether they asked for anonymity or any of that. Right. Um, but 
the reality is that they had a, they had a public face. They were shooting Skype videos from their solitary confinement cells and and talking to reporters live on the air. Um, and so, you know, they did that, and they knew they knew that they would be punished for it. Um, but basically, they haven't seen the light of day, um, you know, since really. I mean, um, kinetic was out of solitary confinement for about a week earlier this year. Um, and he kind of just thought it was like a setup to um, just throw him right back in and say that they let him out for a little while so that it wasn't indefinite. Um, and then Ben Yu, you know, has been shuffled around. They both got shuffled around to some really bad prisons. So they got sent to these prisons within Alabama that have reputations as bully camps you know, where they were, you know, beaten basically through their accounts, right? And, um, you know, kinetic justice was um, put in a, a dry cell, they call it at one point, which there's a few of the prisoners who have been, whose names are out there this year who are saying that that has happened to them as well. A dry cell means that they're put in a cell that has no water. Um, and um, so, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that happen um, and people just get disappeared and they just, you know, I mean, people still write them, right? They try to do what they can, but they'll often get on, put on like a restriction where they're not allowed to use the phone system either. Um, and so they get this extreme isolation. And I mean, I don't know how much your listeners know about solitary confinement, but the UN will say that after 15 days that solitary confinement is a form of torture. Um, it's probably a form of torture earlier than that, but they know that it really starts messing with people's heads at about the 15-day mark from whatever studies that they've done. Um, so, you know, this is like really, it's, it's horrible stuff. And solitary confinement goes on for thousands and thousands of prisoners on a daily basis in America. We have more prisoners in solitary confinement than anywhere in the world, um, just like we have more prisoners than anywhere in the world. Um, so these things are not unusual. Um, but that precedent, basically, for this year's um, sort of leadership um, was something that they wanted to learn from. And so they've made tactical decisions not to reveal their you know, their government names to media. Um, and thus far, that has presented a barrier for them doing interviews within mainstream publications because, um, and I shouldn't say entirely doing interviews, we've had incidents where they've done interviews, but outlets won't actually print their words because um, they'll claim that they can't verify that the person is, you know, a legitimate, you know, I mean, they sort of play this role, right, as if we're like, were, you know, as if calls are being coordinated for them to talk to um, people who might be pretending to be prisoners, right? Um, I think that's sort of the the most cynical. They they haven't come out and settled any of that, right? Sure. But they they have a certain ethical code, which I understand, right? They as a reporter, they have a certain ethical code, like to sort of verify that people are who they say they are and things like that. So that that does make sense, but at the same time. You have to understand when you're working with prisoners um, that there's another ethical code that I think has to come into play, which is that as reporters, we shouldn't be putting somebody um, in a situation where they're going to be tortured because of what we write. 
Um, and that's, that's my perspective, right? So, um, but I also think that this, you know, part of the issue is that, again, when you have these brand new reporters or reporters who've never covered this, never talked to these people before, um, they haven't developed sources, you know what I mean? So they don't have a way to know that this person is a reputable source, whereas folks that have developed longer relationships have um, you know, it also becomes, it's a two-way street, right? The prisoner has to trust you that you're not going to reveal their identity, right? And um, so it, it's a very complex thing that way. So that that makes it challenging for reporters. And I don't fully put that on the reporters, um, but it is um, it is definitely a challenge and it has been a challenge. And I think I agree with the prisoner's stance on it, right? Because I think that they're trying to protect themselves as best they can. Um, but I think that it it also then, you know, removes some of their voice from the conversation, which is actually partly why I published a couple of interviews with prisoners this year in relation to why the strike was being called. Um, and then another one a couple of weeks ago, right before the strike was being called, because I knew that it would be very difficult for them to do interviews once it started, because um, the other thing that happens too is it's just, you know, prison officials are all over the country trying to root out all strike activity, right? And sort of, um, you know, isolate those people, make sure they don't have access to communication, um, and so that that obviously presents another set of problems that we knew. And there are certain people that were organizers that you know just aren't. No, you you just can't get a hold of them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you know. go on much too further, can we can we yeah. go back just just like one step? Uh, you were talking a little sure. bit about uh, journalists and like the mainstream coverage of the uh, prison strike. And you've been tweeting a lot about that lately, and I want to get um, maybe more of your opinion on what's going on there. So uh, some of your tweets have been a little bit frustrated with like the ways that journalists and media outlets are covering the strike overall, and I think rightfully so. Could you tell us just a little bit more about um, like what those big media outlets get wrong? I mean, you've said a few times that the, the journalists that are covering it now just maybe don't have the, the background for this type of work. And I think that's a really important piece of the story because the maybe the public just isn't getting, you know, what's actually happening in these prisons. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that here's here's the fundamental issue is that um, mainstream media outlets um, are and journalists are taught to privilege information that comes from official sources. Um, so if the state tells the New York Times or the Washington Post that something is not happening, then they print that. Um, And the issue with that, I mean, there's a general issue with that, right? Like there's an issue with that that comes up all the time. And what's ironic about it, right, is that, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times will do all of this in-depth reporting on Trump, for instance, to show, you know, all of these things going on behind the scenes that sort of disrupt the state narrative. You know what I mean? Um, So they're willing to do the in-depth reporting to try to um, work on a certain investigation, right, into the legitimacy of this presidency um, and into things that um, may be going on behind the scenes there that contradict the official narrative. Um, They should be putting that same energy 
into covering a prison strike if they want to cover it well. So they should come from a skeptical um, view of prison authorities because honestly, I can tell you that getting the truth out of a prison official is one of the rarest things that you will ever find. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen. I've seen it happen. We do phone blasts sometimes where, um, you know, people call in to talk about like conditions in prisons and try to, you know, push them to change it. And usually what will happen is like, you know, I'll get report back, say that like 40 or 50 people, uh, you know, send a report back of, you know, they called or whatever. And, um, and the reality is that like, you know, one or two people will get have had a conversation with an official where basically they broke with official narrative and admitted that something was going on. Um, but it takes a, that's the sort of pressure, right, that it kind of takes to get past the official response in prisons, because the official response in prisons is always nothing is going on. Everything's normal, um, you know, and then you also get stuff in those call-ins. It's really interesting, right, of like people telling you that work in prisons, look, there are bad people back here. They're back here for a reason. Um, you know, and so that I think is the other side of what you're dealing with when you're dealing with journalists, but also in the publications they work for, but also the general public, honestly, right, is that um, we're trained to look at prisoners as, as bad, as evil, as unreliable people. Um, and we're trained to look at them, frankly, as sort of subhuman, which is why even human rights concerns, right, are sort of, well, we have to talk about, do the prisoners deserve human rights? Um, and so you're trying to break through all of that. And basically my commentary towards journalists and towards these outlets is that, like, you can't approach it, you can't approach writing about prisons with somebody who still has all that baggage, like, you have to approach it with somebody who's written about them enough that even if they still have certain biases, um, that they still, they're at least, they know enough to know how it works and to know, um, you know, to know to be skeptical of the state, to know that, okay, I need to try to reach out to family members of prisoners to see what they're hearing. I need to try to get a hold of a few um, people that are incarcerated to see what they're saying about what's going on. Um, so, you know, you have to triangulate and try to get to um, the truth. And I'm not saying you, you totally discount what the state says entirely, but you have to take it with the huge grain of salt that it is in their best interest to make this whole thing go away. Yeah, I mean, I think what you were just saying about how, uh, like, a lot of media outlets don't take what the state uh, says seriously when it comes to reporting on something like Donald Trump uh, because they understand that vested interest, but then they don't apply that uh, same standard to something like a prison strike. I think that's a really good um, example in general, this kind of weird like uh, faith in institutions to kind of deliver you the truth. Um, and maybe we could talk a little bit more about that uh, just in the terms of like abolitionism and reformism. Um, so, I mean, this is a a big thing that kind of makes sense in a certain kind of liberal framework, I guess, right? That like the institution of prison is not bad per se, even though there might be discrete policies or habits in prisons that are bad. So you've got to reform those things and get them out. Um, but uh, there are a lot of, you know, radical leftists who say that's not enough. You have to have a, a complete abolitionist platform. 
Um, and could you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, you know, what does that abolitionism look like as somebody who spends a lot of time, you know, thinking about prisons and prisoners and building those relationships? And uh, why would someone maybe want to be an abolitionist uh, over and against a sort of reformist? Yeah, so I think that, you know, and you, having you all having talked about Angela Davis and why prisons, I mean, our prisons obsolete last week is a great sort of grounding for this discussion. Um but I think that the basic fundamental question you have to come to is, right, is like, um, is the system broken? So is the system supposed to do something positive for society, but is just not functioning quite well um, and needs to be, like, tinkered with and fixed? And that's a reformist perspective. Um, or is the system designed to do something that's really bad um, and... Maybe we're taught that it's something good, but it's not. Um, and it's functioning generally the way that it's supposed to, right? So abolitionists sort of think that, right? They think that, um, and, you know, it comes from, it, it definitely comes out of the lineage, right, of slavery abolition, right? So the idea that, like, slavery was a bad institution. <laughs> it was a really horrible idea to think that other human beings should be enslaved to you know, that human beings should be enslaved to other human beings for whatever reason. Um, and so when you look at prison, you know, it takes time. Like I always advise people like read the new Jim Crow, um, read our prisons obsolete, like try to understand what's going on. Um, because I don't, it's not simple, you know, it's very complex. Um, but I think the more that you read and the more that you actually examine what prisons do and how they function and how they're used by the political class um, and how, you know, how policing works within society, um, I, I mean, I come to the perspective, right, that it's, it's, it's a bad function. It's not something that um, we should want. Now... That doesn't mean, and I, you know, I think this is where people get caught up, right? It doesn't mean that you don't put in place structures to address harm. Um, and it doesn't mean that you don't put in place some sort of, you know, agreed upon system of how you're going to make things right when something bad happens or um, how you might deal with murder or rape or things like that, right? So, I think where people get lost sometimes is that they think like the abolition of prison is just sort of, um, you know, the the end of order, you know, the end of like a safe society, um, and that's really unfortunately um, it's a very Eurocentric perspective, um, but it's also a very um, it's a very recent perspective, right? Historically. So if you go, like, I use this example on the podcast I used recently, but I think it's a good one. I think it gives a good example for folks is that in 1911, the first prison was built in Kenya. Um, and before that, they didn't have any prisons. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, people were running around committing crime all of the time in Kenya. Like, that's just not true, right? Um, the reality of it, right, was that they had their own systems within their societies of how they dealt with harm. Um, and 
it wasn't by locking people in cages. Um, you know, and it, you know, with Europeans, it's a little more tricky because we, um, our heritage, right. There's a lot of like punishment and, um, you know, like corporal punishment, like all of this kind of, you know, these sort of like mob shows and things like that, you know, lynch mobs. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of bad history within our tradition around this. And I think sometimes we think, take that for all of history. Um, but the reality is that prisons came to all these different places around the world because European colonizers brought them there. Um, and as a way to deal with people who did not assimilate into the society as they saw that it should be constructed. Um, so as an abolitionist, I'm interested in things like transformative justice and restorative justice, other approaches to deal with um, harm, hold people accountable. It doesn't mean that like, you know, people just get, you know, let off easy. Um, you know, I think holding people accountable as a community is actually a much stronger process, um, but it requires also us to live in community with each other, which is, I think, something we struggle with in the U.S. too. Um, but, you know, those are the, the alternative. It, it's just, it's, I, I don't know how to really explain it other than as strange as it seems to people that there could be a world without prisons. I think it's much stranger that when somebody does something that is against a law that's created by some legislative body and determined by, uh, you know, a, a court system with a judge that's either appointed or like elected for often like his whole life, um, that, you know, when something goes wrong there, that somebody has to then go in a cage for like 50 years. Like it just doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I think, I, I think that's a ridiculous idea. I think that's a really <laughs> good, a really good way to put it in, um, in the Angela Davis book that we read last week, there's a, a quote she said, uh, where she's like, well, why does anyone think that makes them safer as like a, as a people, you know, it, cause it doesn't. Um, well, uh, you were just talking about sort of the Eurocentrism and uh, behind the imagination of uh, incarceration. And I think that's a really good thing to note. Um, speaking of Eurocentrism, <laughs> this is a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Uh, we are inheritors of that Eurocentrism for, well, for worse, usually. Um, but uh, we did think that we should ask um, uh, about the influence of religion on um on uh, abolitionism and maybe the prison strike that's going on right now. And if you've seen anything um, about the connection there, um, has religion been an influence for any of the strikers or for the folks supporting the strike? Uh, like, you know, do prison chaplains maybe have something to say about the strike? Is there any connection there or is it just kind of a hopeless cause? I would love to know what prison chaplains think. Um, <laughs> me too. I don't, you know, I, I, that's a great thing for me to like, I, I would love to explore that actually a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, the hard part, right, is that prison is an awful place and awful stuff happens there, you know, it, because it's a prison, right? I mean, it, it's not it's not that the people there are like irredeemable. Um, you know, you just, it, it, it's an ultra violent environment and it's constructed to be so. Um, so I often think like people who work in prisons have a really jaded perspective on it too. Um, you know, because they just like, they see, 
they they a lot of times they can see how bad the conditions are and they feel bad about that and they think those need to improve um but yet they also tend to have these really um like sort of cynical perspectives on humanity um so you know that's the tough piece you have with i think sort of people that work in prisons generally and my guess is that that you know also may spread to some prison chaplains, but I have never really had conversations with prison chaplains, so I can't say. I think that in terms of Christianity, for me, um, you know, I don't really identify as Christian myself at this point in my life, but I went to church growing up, and I think that um, my faith is definitely something that informed my radical imagination, Um, you know, because I think that... I think that faith requires radical imagination, um, particularly in our times. Um, And, you know, I think abolition is that as well, right? Um, I think that it requires you to see something that's completely different than what you have. Um, But it's also, you know, lessons that I took away from the Bible, right, were about, like, redemption and forgiving people's sins. (laughs) Um, And... I don't know how that squares with people in terms of the prison system. I mean, I'm sure you, you can pull some like Old Testament quotes out, right, that, um, that probably justify the prison system pretty well. But, um, you know, when you think about the life of Jesus um, and, and sort of the sacrifice of, of his life, um, you know, I think it's pretty hard to like square that story with... Um, with a society, I mean, I mean, even the people Jesus hung out with, right? Like, I, it just doesn't, you know, Jesus was an enemy of the state, you know? I mean, he was killed by the state, right? So I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of lessons there, I think, that can connect Christianity with abolition. Um, in terms of the prisoners that I talk to, their faiths vary. Um, some are Muslim, some are Christian. Um, but, you know, I think that their faith is, is important to them. Um, I don't know, you know, I think that it, it does to a certain degree inform their politics, right? Because I think, again, like, um, this idea that we get of, like, the prison requires a logic that certain people just deserve to be thrown away, um, And, you know, I just don't think that that's a very Christian concept, even in the way, even though it has been manipulated in that way um, throughout history, right? Um, So you can certainly find examples of awful things, right, that have been done in the name of Christianity. But, um, but I don't think that there, you know, I view those, those, um, uh, those periods of history is fairly reactionary, even within the faith, you know? So, yeah, I think that's a, a, a good way to kind of frame it. Um, it it's it, you're what you're doing. Sorry. <laughs> what you're saying right now kind of echoes a, a point that we come to on this podcast a lot that, um, you know, f- for as radical as the, the message of some, some Christianity is uh, at the end of the day, some people still, some Christians still find a way to be prison guards. Some Christians still find ways to be cops and, yeah, it, it seems like that's hard to really square away, but uh, ideology is a hell of a drug, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's also just like, it's really interesting to think about the religion piece in um, conversations about places like prisons, because they are such, uh, you know, hell holes, like real sort of sores on the earth in many ways. And, um, but they, they also are like, very fertile for interesting ways that religion shows up there. Um, there's this book by this uh, religious studies guy, Josh Dubler, who's a um, also an abolitionist uh, called Down in the Chapel. And it's just like a really wild like ethnography, more or less, of uh, different people that he met in a um, Philadelphia prison. Uh, two of them are Christian and two of them are Muslim. But but the argument that he essentially makes is that like these are like really creative spaces for people to kind of think through like what their faith means. And um, it kind of gives birth to like new forms of, of belief. And yeah, anyway, um, I think it's just kind of a yeah neglected piece. I think that's an important thing, you know, I mean, um, it, it's, it's hard to talk about that a little bit for me because I think that putting people in prison is such a horrible thing, right? Um, but there's certainly something to, um, you know, the fact that we have some amazing prison intellectuals, um, and prison, um, you know, figures of faith, um, that, and, and, and this is the thing too. I mean, I always encourage people to talk to prisoners because you, you learn so much, you know, like this is part of, this is part of why I am an abolitionist is that like, you know, some of the most, I have learned more talking to prisoners about things than, I do talking to people out in our society, like, you know, even like great intellectuals that I've had the, and I've had, you know, I've had the privilege of talking to some really amazing people. Um, But some of the, some of my favorite lessons that I've learned, you know, um, have come from talking to prisoners. And um, so, you know, I think that there's this like, it's a weird dynamic, right? Because, and it, and the funny thing too, it's not funny, but like, you know, a lot of the prisoners that I've had the privilege of building relationships with, they're serving life sentences, you know? And so um, the crimes that they're convicted of are heinous acts. Um, but at the same time, like, I can tell that whatever, whether whether they were, I usually don't, ask them questions about their crimes, right? Um, But, you know, you can always look stuff up, public records and things. Um, But whether they did it or they didn't, right, whether it was, because there's there's a lot of people in prison that did not do what they're convicted of. Um, But, you know, like, it, it gives you faith, right, that redemption is an important thing and that people are worthy of, of second chances because, um you can just see how much people have turned their life around. And, and that's the most frustrating thing, right? Is that like that people can understand that they did something deeply wrong and they can have remorse for it. Um, and they can be interested in completely transforming and changing who they are um, and becoming, you know, an amazing intellectual political thinker, theorist, you know, person of faith, all of those things. And yet, like, we don't even have a mechanism within our society to get 
a lot of those people back out of prison um, when they could be contributing in amazing ways, you know, to our society. So I think that's part of what has made me an abolitionist too, is like this understanding that like, okay, like if this person did something that's really that terrible, definitely there should have been a process, right? To like, they, they need to make amends. They need to, there should be a process of restitution. There should be, I'm, I'm for all of that, right? Like, I don't think that anybody should get off that does something really terrible, um, should just get off without like some sort of accountability. Um, but I think that if we rethink about how we might hold people accountable, um, and like I said, I think we have lessons throughout history that we're ignoring because we're, we're so Eurocentric in our perspective of history, um, that basically, you know, there's incredible opportunities to, to improve our society that way. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think that's just a good piece to keep in mind, too, right? That, like, just because somebody goes to a prison doesn't mean that that's sort of where their story ends or whatever. Um, that's not like a... It's it's a. It might be like a life sentence in a certain temporal sense, but, like, people still have to live and, like, think and figure that out. Um, I think that's a just a... It sounds sort of maybe commonsensical if you, like, think for two minutes about, like, human life and, and prisons, but... Uh, I don't know, I guess not for most folks. Um, but we're kind of coming up to the, the end of our time. Uh, we have sort of like a stock question that we try to ask uh, all our guests, so we'll uh, put it to you here um, toward the end. Uh, and that question is, uh, what do you think that Christians should know about the left or about abolitionism in general? And uh, secondly, what do you think that the left or abolitionists should maybe know about Christianity or, or Christians? Sort of just putting you on the spot here a little bit. Yeah, um... I think in terms of Christians, um, I think that they should examine the the life of Christ deeply, <laughs> you know, um, because I think that, you know, in general, the life of Christ was on a political spectrum really far left, um, you know, and so I think that just for for people who are Christians that, you know, grapple with that, I think that they should really think about that a lot. Um, in terms of the left to Christian, so, and then I guess to abolitionism, you know, I would say the same thing. I, I would say that the idea of giving your son for, like, the sins of all of humanity, um, making that sacrifice, um you know, it, I, I would say that that is, a, that is an abolitionist sort of thought, right, of, like, um, being willing to sacrifice your own, you know, your own blood, your own spirit for, um, for everybody else, right? Um, even though, even though, like, you know, there's arguments, right, that we didn't deserve that sacrifice, I think. <laughs> um, and so I think that that's, you know... Abolition is all about, um, it's about moving beyond, like, revenge and retribution, I think. Um, and it's about trying to understand um, that those things don't actually make us whole. Um, they don't actually, like, really solve any of the problems that were created by the harm that was done. Um 
And that's not easy. That goes against, I think, a lot of very like basic impulses of people. Um, but I think it's really powerful when you start to change that mindset. Um, in terms of the flip side, like what left leftists and abolitionists can learn from Christianity, um, you know, I think from the left, um, it depends a lot on what part of the left you're on, you know, to be honest. I mean, there's so many different tendencies within the left, and we have a lot to work out among ourselves. Um, but, um, you know, I think that um, I, I always think it's important for leftists to understand religion broadly and to understand um, that even if they don't agree with all of the positions that are prescribed by by religions, that um, that religion shapes culture um, and it shapes ideas and minds in very powerful ways. Um, and so I think it's important to, to understand those things. I think we've also seen historically um, that like states moving towards communism, like socialist states or whatever, like um, that when they try to completely exclude religious thought, that that doesn't really work, right? It doesn't. It doesn't take over time. Um, you know, people people need that as well. So you know, I don't think you can eliminate faith, and so I think it's important to um, to figure out how you can have a relationship with it that's that's healthy um, and and where you at least understand it, even if it's not something that you um, take on for yourself. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's my general, my general thoughts on it. It's good. They're good thoughts. Yeah. Uh, free to every pastor, I guess, preaching on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much, Jared, for being on the podcast. I know, uh, I mean, it's a really, really busy time for you, especially right now. And, uh, you know, we're really thankful that you could sort of carve out a little bit of space to, um, boost the signal, at least in, in our community, and uh, I hope that more um, Christians especially will be able to find a place in the abolitionist movement and, um, you know, find ways, hopefully, to uh, uh, get in touch and, and support this stuff and follow the kind of journalism that you and other folks are doing. So thanks for, uh, for providing that service, too, for the rest of us. It's a huge, crazy kind of thing to contemplate. I can't even imagine uh, reporting on that as a journalist myself, so <laughs> good for you. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard here, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, we also have a bunch of stickers and whatnot, uh, some shirts, posters, etc. at uh, redbubble.com slash people slash The Magnificast. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. We're on Facebook. We've got uh, all kinds of stuff going on there. Um, and also, you should definitely go check out uh, Jared's podcast, Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. There's another really great episode uh, that happened before the prison strike that talks a little bit more about what prisons are. And um, if you especially liked the the previous episode about Angela Davis's stuff, you can learn lots, lots more on that episode. Uh, and also, the podcast that he produces, Beyond Prisons, is really great. Um, also, Jared uh, does this freelance reporting on prisons, which, surprise, is really hard to fund. And he has a number of ways that you can do that. If you check out his Twitter, there's a link to uh, a way to support his work. And uh, let's see, what else do we have to add? I guess that's it. Um, our music is by Amari Armstrong, and our outro is The Illogical Spoon. See you next week.
gonna get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.